So, Vaidabra Hashem al Moshe Valarum Lamor Zos Chukas HaTorah Asher Tziva Hashem Lamor. This is the Chukas HaTorah, the Chok of the Torah that God commanded. Take for yourself a red cow, tamima, pure whole. Asher there is no blemishes. And then it goes into elaborate the details, the laws of the poor aduma. The juxtaposing of this particular parsha at this particular location is very interesting and perhaps is very significant I mean it obviously is significant what the significance is I'm not sure and this is placed right after the parish of Korach right after the rebellion of Korach and it then right after this continues with the um in, in the next page, page 388, with the um, episode of the main Moshe and Aaron lose their the right to entry in the land of Israel. Page 382 begins on top. This, of course, refers to the last year of the sojourn in the wilderness. In other words, we just ended off the last episode with Korach, which was taking place in like the first year and a half, and it now continues with the last year. There's a 39-year approximately lapse, gap, right, of where nothing is recorded as to any event that occurs. Sort of like a missing 38 and a half years. And Paraduma kind of bridges that that gap. So Paraduma is placed in the exact center, in the exact center of the 40 years in the wilderness. Why would that be? It's placed like in the center. It's juxtaposed in the center of the 40 years of when the Jews were in the wilderness. If you want to bridge the first year and a half with the last year, there's no real um, continuum here. And Paradum is placed smack in the middle of that. Paradum, we know, is from the most mysterious of mitzvahs. Shlomo Melch himself referred to the mitzvah Paradum as too much beyond his capacity to comprehend. I thought I was wise, I attempted to understand the entire Torah. And I was able to get to the bottom of understanding the mystery of all of the mitzvahs in the Torah, but not Paradum. That one I was never able to grasp. And therefore Paradum is used always as the prototype and the model mitzvah that seems to be beyond the capacity of the human being to understand its reason, its rationale. 
Although there are reasons that are given for Poraduma, but apparently it's still always considered beyond the capacity of the human being to fully comprehend the mitzvah. And in a sense, therefore, Poraduma becomes the model mitzvah of where man comes face to face with the divine, with the divine imperative in a way which he can't fathom. That's what Paradum is. It becomes the prototype of divine commands that are unfathomable by the human being. And its placement at the center or the bridge perhaps is part of its mystery. But its introduction at this juncture between all of the mitzvahs and the term that's employed for it is Zos Chukas HaTorah where a much more broad general term is used of course we know the word Chok is usually used to mean a mitzvah that's beyond beyond reason or un, or unfathomable but this refers to it not only as the Chok of the Poraduma but as the Chok of the entire Torah itself. If you look on the top right, the Archaim HaKadosh already someone asks this, this question. Zos Chukas HaTorah says the Archaim Tzorach Lodas Lomo Kino Lomitzvizu Shem Klolus HaTorah How come this particular mitzvah which is only one mitzvah out of the Tariyag mitzvah out of the 613, how come this mitzvah is, is called and introduced with the expression of the entirety of the Torah? It becomes almost as a model mitzvah of all the mitzvahs of the Torah. It's by saying Zos Chukas HaTorah, you're saying, I'm now going to tell you the Chok of the entire Torah whereby all of the Torah is embodied and incorporated in this one mitzvah, Zos Chukas Torah. This is the representative of the entire Torah. Why? Because the expression that should have been used would have been Shehoyu Loimar Zos Chuka. This is the Chok or Zos Chukas Hatuma or this is the Chok of the laws of impurity, or it could have said Zos Chukas Hatara, this is the Chok of the laws of purification, or it could have said Zos Chukas Hapora. The expression that should have been used over here is similar to what we find in the rest of the Torah whenever a particular law is introduced, such as, he gives an example, Zos Chukas HaPesach. This is the Chok of the law of Korban Pesach. It introduces it by saying, Zos Chukas Pesach. This is the Chok of the Pesach. That's the way a law is usually introduced. So here we're dealing with the laws of Poraduma, or the laws of Tuma, or the laws of Tara. It could have introduced it by saying, Zos Chukas HaPora, Zos Chukas HaTuma, Zos Chukas HaTara. Instead, it uses a very generic expression of Zos Chukas HaTorah. Why does Poraduma become 
the mitzvah that gets introduced in a generic way for the entire Torah. Actually, there's one more place where we find where we find the expression of Zos Chukas Torah as a introduction of a particular mitzvah itself. Where is that? If you look in Parshas in Parshas Matos let's see that will be on page 418 page 418 Pasuk Chafalov Bayomer Lazar Cohen, El Anshe Atsova Boga Mohoma, Zos Hukasa Torah, Ashetiva Shelis Mosha. So again, we find the expression, the generic expression, the general incorporation of one mitzvah as being the embodiment of Zos Hukasa Torah. It's one mitzvah referred to over here. Actually, it takes uh, three psukim to mention it and it's called Zos Chukas HaTorah it should the same way as Por Aduma. what mitzvah is that? it's the mitzvah of kashering kashering your utensils your utensils were treif and you brought it from the goyim or you got it from the goyim in one form <coughs> so before you could use it and before you could use it for cooking and baking your own kosher products, you have to kosher it. It's also introduced as also kasatar. So we'll shortly get to an understanding of what the common denominator is. If there is one, we're not going to go so much into that. We've discussed that on other occasions. What would the common denominator be? But says the Archaim HaKadosh, he says a remez, the idea of referring to the Torah as being a prototype of all of the Torah, as if to say, that if you fulfill this mitzvah, although this is considered to be the most chok of all mitzvahs, we give you the credit of fulfilling the entirety of the Torah that God commanded. Because when you fulfill a mitzvah without reason, that shows a willingness on the part of the person to fulfill any and every mitzvah of the Torah and that he believes with a perfect and complete faith to fulfill all the mitzvahs. This then becomes a sign and an indicator of your willingness to accept everything else. For that reason Hashem needed at least one mitzvah that's completely beyond any person's ability to have an agenda regarding it. 
No, apparently it's not the same. Apparently this is singled out. As Shlomo Melch himself said, that I was able to come to a satisfying understanding and explanation for all mitzvahs in the Torah, save poor Aduma. That's the one he couldn't understand. Shlomo Melech. So apparently if you're smart enough, you'll be able to understand more and more about all of the mitzvahs, including the Chukim. But Shlomo Melech said, this is beyond me. And because it's beyond, I couldn't understand. Says the Archaim, it becomes important to have such a mitzvah as an indicator of, of where you stand vis-a-vis all the other mitzvahs that you do understand. If you're capable of fulfilling a mitzvah for the sake of God and for the sake of mitzvah beyond your comprehension, then it shows that even what you do comprehend, you're still doing it as an act of listening to Hashem. The problem, of course, is that generally speaking, most people that perform mitzvahs and perform the mitzvahs that they understand with a certain degree of enthusiasm do so because of their personal recognition and involvement and appreciation of that mitzvah. But then you're performing the mitzvah in appreciation. And there's an element of trying to perform mitzvahs because they're mitzvahs, they're commands. The word mitzvah is a command. You're going to do mitzvahs because you appreciate them and you understand them. And you've never reached the level of performing a mitzvah because God said so. Obedience. We know that when you take upon yourself the mitzvah of the Torah as a gear, you have to accept all the mitzvahs bar none. And if a gear is willing to take 612 out of the 613, he's not accepted. Even though 612 out of 613 is a pretty good total. It's like 99.8% or 99.9%. I mean, you're you're 99.8%. You're almost there. So what's the difference if you're off by a fraction of a percent most Jews are off by much more. Yeah, that's really, really true. Right, I mean, how many Jews are 90%, 95%, 99%? How many are 80%, unfortunately? Teretz is, if what we're talking about is the concept of being subservient to God, and you say to God, I like 612 out of your 613, this I'm unwilling to accept, then it's not non-compliance that we're concerned with, it's non-acceptance that we're concerned with. Non-compliance is something which is the failing of all human beings. But non-acceptance means a rebellion. It's like the rebellion of Korach. (coughs) Korach's rebellion was, everything is good, everybody is holy, but this I don't accept. This I don't is unreasonable and because it's unreasonable I don't want to accept it and as a result you've accepted nothing if you don't accept at all then it's an oxymoron to say that you've accepted most because obedience 
being an Eved Hashem, Avdus, implies subjugation to God's will as being superior to your own. And if you don't accept even one mitzvah, that you're thereby demonstrating not merely non-compliance, but non-obedience as well. It's not subjugation to God. And therefore even one becomes significant. As a result, if you're going to have mitzvahs that people are able to relate to and appreciate and thereby fulfill, you, do, you haven't really proven the point of nasa v'nishma, which is the level that the Jews had to come to to accept the Torah. For the Jews, wow. the challenge that Avraham Avinu had, as you just pointed out, by Akedas Yitzchak was one of complete subservience beyond the realm of human capacity to fathom. And the danger sometimes of a person that tries to understand, although you get a deeper appreciation of the mitzvah, is it leads you to start thinking this is the rationale behind the mitzvah. We had that last week when we talked about Korach. Korach's challenge was it's unreasonable to require one more thread. I already have thousands of threads of tchelis. What's one more? One more adds to it what? A fraction of a percent. Exactly. If I have a room full of swarm, one little parsha which is one fraction of a percent of the entire Torah. Why would I get one more parsha when I have the whole room full of Sifrei Torah to begin with? What do I need that little tiny fraction? A person, therefore, that accepts the entire Torah with one minute amount of non-acceptance, it's more than non-compliance. It's non-acceptance. All Jews are guilty of non-compliance. As Shlomo Melech himself said, You will not find a tzaddik without sin. So there's always going to be non-compliance. But non-acceptance is much different. And the difference between non-compliance and non-acceptance is that in the case of non-compliance, you can talk about percentages and fractions of percentages. You're a 90% tzaddik, 95% compliant. You know, it's like uh, energy compliant things. How compliant are you with the total? And if you, if, you know, they pass a law that you have to be energy efficient. And they come by and they discover that you're 99% compliant with the laws. So you're 99% compliant, they're not going to throw you in jail. But if you refuse to accept the law, the fact that you may be 99% compliant, you're going to be thrown into jail. You're 99% compliant, but you've never accepted the law. That's non-acceptance. Korach rebelled against acceptance, not merely compliance. Comes the Korah Duma and says, let's give you a test, a test run of acceptance by giving you a mitzvah that you're going to search and search, but you're always going to have a problem with, and it'll be unfathomable, 
how do you approach the performance of this mitzvah? And if you approach it with acceptance like the rest of the Torah, it now means that you've accepted the rest. And therefore the fraction of the percent of this one mitzvah that you then perform with acceptance becomes a reflection on all of the other mitzvahs as well. Or in the phraseology that we've used on other occasions. There's melech mitzvahs, omen rofei mitzvahs, that all mitzvahs have an aspect of therapeutic, beneficial aspects similar to medicine that a doctor prescribes. But all mitzvahs have the king's decree behind it as well. If you perform mitzvahs only as a rofei mitzvahs, as a voluntary thing, then you're always still doing it with a little bit of your agenda mixed in. Only when you perform a mitzvah as melech mitzvah does it justify all your other mitzvahs the same way. And as a result, no mitzvah is perfect in the sense of full, of full acceptance until you finally reach the brick wall of saying, I'm only doing this because God told me to. Kabolas all Malchus Avram Avinu reached that point with Akedas Yitzchak. The Jewish people reached that with Nasav and Nishma. And therefore they had to precede Nasa before Nishma. That to say Nasa before the Nishma, before the understanding, before the appreciation, before the critical analysis which runs so counter to modern education where <coughs> many schools praise themselves by saying we're raising our children to be to do critical analysis and critical thought and that's not the traditional way to, to raise children we raise our children with Nasa before the Nishma and as we pointed out the other day it becomes a much more successful approach even regarding the Nishma, let alone regarding the Nasa. Obviously, the Nasa before the Nishma approach is much more effective than raising a generation of children and adults that will maintain their Nasa and observance later on in life. Clearly, the other approach has proven totally ineffective and been a disaster. But even from the vantage point of the Nishma, you wind up with much greater nishma, with a nasav and nishma approach than with those that are going to be critical. And I gave you the example. I mean, all of these so-called schools, I don't mean the conservative reform movement that are beyond the pale to begin with. I'm talking about the orthodox. The so-called orthodox that say we accept Torah. But if they try to raise children by saying, let's analyze a parsha and see what you have to say. And let's try critical analysis. Twelve years later, the kids graduate, buck amaratsim. They still come out amaratsim. They're incapable of telling you about Dvar Torah. They can't say a thing. There's no Torah that's being said by them. There's no critical analysis and understanding and, and the gishmak ishtikle Torah that comes out of that. But there are exceptions, obviously. But the overwhelming majority of children that follow this method of doing the nishma 
before the NASA and the critical analysis of the schools that praise themselves and say, oh, in our school we teach our children how to think, how to think critically, how to analyze. So what do they come out with? All of their analysis and all their critical thought and all that individual so-called creative thought, they come out creating nothing. Nothing. You listen to them. Huh? Show me a safer that's ever come out from this. And they don't come up with nothing. Yet, the so-called rote method, the old-fashioned, yet tried and true method of Nasa and then Nishma seems to produce a lot of Nishma as well as Nasa. There's a lot more observance, a lot more Nasa, and there's a lot more Nishma as well. There's a lot more of that, there's a lot more understanding. Clearly there's much more observance percentage of those that come out graduates of a NASA Manishma approach are clearly more observant than the other approach <clears throat> but even in terms of the Nishma how much tire has come out of Ramaz tire from their graduates how much tire came out of there versus the other extreme so the Torah has to say, Zos chukas Let's give a mitzvah that shows your complete subjugation. And if you do that, it reflects on everything else. If you don't do that, you have nothing. So Zos chukas In this one mitzvah, you have the entirety of the Torah. Because if you don't have this mitzvah, you have nothing of the Torah. Not you have 99%, you have 0%. Like the gear that accepts it all, but one, you're not a gear, you're a guy. That's what happens. A gear that accepts everything, but one, has nothing, has none of the Torah. We don't say the gear has most of the Torah, 99% of the Torah. You have none of the Torah. You have none of the Torah. So therefore you have Zos Chukas HaTorah. Torah becomes a model, a paradigm of the entire Torah. And therefore when the Ger comes and says, I want to be a Ger, you have to accept, you have to explain to the Ger this concept. You're a Ger, you're accepting the entire Torah like the Jewish people did by Har Sinai, Nasa, Vinishma. Each gear comes, comes to um, comes to the Torah. The same way every Jew comes to the Torah at Har Sinai. Then it was collective. This is personal. It's interesting. We refer to a 13-year-old boy as a bar mitzvah when he's actually a bar mitzvah. He's now a son or a capable person of doing all the mitzvahs. Mitzvah is singular. Mitzvahs is plural. So he's really not a bar mitzvah. He's a bar mitzvahs. Why refer to him as a bar mitzvah? The word mitzvah means chiyuv, obligation. It's not the importance of the sum total of mitzvahs. It's the fact that whereas Tulna was voluntary and not obligatory, he's now obligatory. The obligation is one, one mitzvah, one poraduma, that's it. 
that tells you about everything else. If you have it, you have the other 612. If you don't have it, you have none of it. You're bar mitzvahs, bar chiyuvah. A person who's now under obligation. Obligation of which one? He took it all, Nasa v'nishma. When the Jews said Nasa v'nishma, they knew all the 613. But the approach of Nasa v'nishma means you're a bar chiyuva, a bar mitzvah. A gear is expected to know all the mitzvahs? No, of course not. So you give him samples. Samples of the big ones, samples of the little ones, samples of the tough ones, samples of the easy ones. You give him a smorgasbord of the Torah with little samples. Then he takes it all. He doesn't have to know the rest of it. He now becomes a bar chiyuva, a bar mitzvah. And therefore at the center of the Torah, you have to have poraduma. And therefore it's called zos chukas ha-Torah. You have the poraduma, you've justified the rest also. You know, um, the Gemara in, in Menachos, uh, Gimel brings down the story of how Dovr HaMelech went into a bathhouse. And he found himself naked. Until he looked down and he saw that he still had a mitzvah, the bris. What's the Gemara telling us? Of course he was naked. Everybody's naked in the mikvah. So now you recognize he had a bris. So the Forshams say that the bathhouse here means he went into a form of mental introspection, of mental cleansing, like a bathhouse, trying to discern and discover, does he really have any mitzvahs? And as he examined his whole life and all of his mitzvahs, he found himself naked from all mitzvahs. He wasn't covered with any of them. Every mitzvah comes with a little bit of an agenda. Either it comes with an agenda or an appreciation, an understanding, or a personal enthusiasm, or a personal feeling, or you're doing it because people are observing you. You don't really have a mitzvah without an ulterior motivation behind it. It's very hard to find one. It's hard to find a mitzvah that's without ulterior motivation, ulterior purposes. And he was looking and he was looking and he said, I'm very disappointed in myself. And he felt depressed. Do I really have any mitzvah that I've ever done in my life? Totally pure, totally for God, and that's credited to me as a true mitzvah. And he couldn't find any. Until he realized that there's one mitzvah which is counted to his credit. And it's a gentleness. I was eight days old when it was performed on me. If anything, I was crying and screaming. It came with pain, with no understanding, with tmimus, with total perfection, with no agenda whatsoever. Chris Mila, it's the only mitzvah that he had. Of course, the... That, that's why some of us should explain that tomorrow. It's a little different than the concept that we're talking about, Torah Duma, when we're talking about finding a mitzvah without rationale. But it's similar in theme with the idea of having a mitzvah without ulterior motives and without agendas and without personal involvement that's totally pure. That's referring to more on a personal level in terms of midos, in terms of ulterior motives. Here we're talking about 
in terms of the person coming to a mitzvah that he recognizes as divine and unfathomable and he does it without any agendas of his own. That's paraduma. Why you're in the middle? Now you say it's in the middle. What? When I'm saying in the middle, I don't mean that. I'm just saying this is an interesting... I, I'm not explaining that. I'm not explaining I said in the beginning, I said it's very interesting and I'm not sure I understand why. But it's just interesting that the, the, that the parsha that separates and refers to that 38 and a half year mysterious gap is the paraduma is there. It's Zos Chukasatoros introduced with that. But the fact that we introduce some mitzvah as Zos Chukasatoros, as this is the chok of the entire Torah, carries with it this particular significance as well. Okay. I told you that that wasn't my point. You know, on a similar level, they say over, the Velt says, you know, you have um, the third meal on Shabbos and you call Shal Shudas. When the correct way of referring to it would be Suda Shlishit or Suda Shlishis. Right? Suda Shlishis means the third meal. Yeah, but that's the correct way. Shal Shudas means three meals. It's very grammatically incorrect. Shal Shudas means Shalosh Sudos. Yeah, which means that you're obligated on three meals on Shabbos. Shalosh Sudas. But the third meal is not three meals. That's the incorrect way of referring to it. You'll refer to the third meal as the three meals. <coughs> It's the third meal, not the three meals. So you go to Ramaz and they will tell you that it's Suda Shlishit, right? They will tell you that. Right? Whereas you go to the uh, traditional ungrammatic, uh, right? That's the way you grew up, Harry, right? You grew up Shalshidis. Shalshidis. It's time for Shalshidis. Comes your edicle back from us, Grandpa. I'm sorry, it's not Shalshidas. That's that's ignorant. It's Sudash Lishit. It's the third meal. So you tell your little edicle, my edicle. The reason why I call Shalshidas is for a different reason. We're obligated on Shabbos to eat three meals. It's a mitzvah, right? Mitzvah. Very, very difficult mitzvah, indeed, isn't it? Friday night, you're famished, and you come home, and the kegels and the, coming out of the oven, and the soup, and the gefilte fish, or the uh, white fish for those of you that like that. Two chalas and kiddush, and you sing shalom aleichem, and you sit down to nice. It's yet yeah, grace mitzvah, shame mitzvah, shabbos, covered shabbos. And you're fussing away. Yeah. It's no chok. Yeah, it's no chok. It's no chok, but eat that. Next morning you go to shul, and you come home after a long davening, all right, 11.30, 12 o'clock, and the shalom is over there, and you're raring to go waiting for that shalom. You're waiting for that shalom. You're eating shalom. And you're eating, yeah. Big chok there, right? comes in the winter time, 4.30 in the afternoon, and you're going to the shul, and that smell of that tuna fish hits you in the nostrils, and whatever you see on the table, that tuna fish just permeates everything, 
and you see those two chalas that are sitting around the wall shop, it's a little bit hard, you know, it's already glazed over that egg crust, and, in the, and your little grandson is telling you, uh, Grandpa, I'm not so interested in Shal Shudas or in Sudas Shlishit anymore. Yeah. And you tell him, my grandson, if you eat this meal, then all three meals means you did a mitzvah. Then you get credit for the other two. If you're not going to eat this third meal, then you don't get credit for the other two. Because you didn't eat it because it's a mitzvah. So if you don't eat Sudash Lishit, then you didn't get Shal Shudas at all. Not that you got two out of three. He's telling you, I did two out of three. Two out of three isn't so bad. What's the shlach? Two out of three, I got 66%. No. If you don't eat Sudash Lishit, then you didn't eat Shal Shidas. So therefore you're telling him, eat Shal Shidas. Because now by eating this, you're eating Shal Shidas. You get credit on the other two. That's the difference between the critical approach of Sudash Lishit, to grammatically say it correctly, or the old-fashioned, ungrammatical usage of Shal Shudas. But that's much more meaningful. If you eat Shal Shudas, you get credit for Shal Shudas. If you do Por Aduma, you get credit on the rest of Zos Chukas HaTorah. That's why it says Zos Chukas HaTorah. Interesting. We're going to be learning next week. We're behind in the daf. We're going to be coming across the Gemara in Kedush Daf Lamral for learning Kibudav Eim. Kibudav Eim is one of the nicest, <coughs> most uh, charming of mitzvahs. Especially parents love to... Uh, they love that mitzvah. They, they, they like to learn with their children. But, but we all understand. And we have that famous, famous story of Doma ben Nesina, who didn't want to wake up his father, even though he was going to lose a big business right, uh, deal. And Hashem rewarded him a year later with what? With a poor aduma. So for the mitzvah of Kibbutz which is so logical, and so reasonable and so rational. If you fulfill it the way you fulfill a mitzvah as you're supposed to, you get a paraduma out of it. Because there's a little bit of paraduma in every mitzvah. That's the point. Every mitzvah contains a, a tiny little paraduma. Every mitzvah has that. Shalshidus. There's a little bit of that tuna fish in the chalk and the kegel and the challah. There's a little bit of that shalshidus there. Poraduma is the is the paradigm of chok. Poraduma is the model chok. There's a little poraduma in every mitzvah. Dovah Benesina fulfills Kibbutz aim, although he's a guy. And he doesn't have to, he does it only because it's reasonable and logical. But for Yidin, there's a poraduma there as well. So there's poraduma everywhere, in all mitzvahs. Coming after the story of Korach's rebellion, which was about the union of Tcheles. You have that mitzvah. Let's read what Rav Moshe Feinstein says. We find, as we just pointed out, in the Parshmatos says Zos Chukasatayra by Giule Nochrim, by the laws of kashering dishes. How come in these two places in the Torah we have the introduction, introductory phrase of Zos Chukasatara? 
Why these two? So there's a lot of interesting reasons for it, but in light of what we just said, it draws our minds to an interesting contrast. Is there anything more logical than Kasher and Kalim? Is there anything more logical? No more logical. Sure. In other words, if you're not allowed to eat treif and you just cooked something, you cooked pork in this pot, I mean, isn't it logical that you have to clean it out and either burn off the fats or cook out the fats or whatever it is to get rid of the treif that's there? In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a law of, of physics of uh, what's it called. It's a, it's, it's based on elementary science. Kashering. It absorbed, and you wanted to get rid of it. I mean, it's perfectly logical. In fact, you shouldn't really need a mitzvah for it. Of course you have to kasher. What else are you going to do? In, uh, if you don't eat treif, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to eat treif. I'm going to eat something else cooked in treif for dishes. I'm going to be getting the, the absorbed taste of the treif. And that's also introduced with Zos Chukas HaTorah. <laughs> Again, the Kash of the Archaim. Why refer to these two mitzvahs, Zos Chukas It should be Zos Chukas Hapor, Zos Chukas HaKelim. The nearest says, Ramosh Shulalamid, I'll call a Torah, Bain Advarm Shein Shaykh Vedatam. It's to teach us the common denominator of all of these mitzvahs. Those that are unfathomable, Bain Advarm Shatam Poshat. And those mitzvahs are the most understandable, reasonable. Everybody, as soon as they start becoming religious and you have to cash their kitchen, the first thing they ask about cash your kitchen, what does that entail? And you explain to them that it's one of the most reasonable things. No one has difficulty grasping the concept of kashering a kitchen. It's, it's posh. But even there, there's poor adumas also katsatorah. Zosu Kasatar applies to Poraduman, it applies to Kashring the exact same way. You take the most logical of mitzvahs and the most illogical of mitzvahs, and the underlying theme on both is Chok. Zosu Kasatar. Zer Samok. And therefore, even mitzvahs, not only where we think we grasp the reasons, or where the Gemara tells us the reasons, but even if the Torah tells us the reasons, it's still a chok. That's the chiddush. Not only mitzvahs that we come up to a brick wall, but you should know that mitzvahs that the Torah gives reasons are still beyond their reasons. And therefore, mitzvahs that have reasons brought down, whether it's in the Sefer HaChinuch, whether it's in the Rambam Meir in the Vuchim, whether it's said by some rabbi in some sermon and some discourse, whether it's in a medrash somewhere, whether it's said by the Gaonim, even if it's in the Gemara, even if it's in the Torah, even then, it's still a Chok. It's important to remember that. Zos Chukas all the Torah is ultimately paraduma without reason. Even where reasons are given, even where reasons are seemingly grasped, it's still gzeres akosif. Now, it's interesting, the one that Eddie said just now, 
What was the mitzvahs involved there? It's tough being king, huh? When the Torah says, not to have abundance in gold and silver for a king or an abundance of women for a king, all of those things the Torah tells you why. Now, the wisest person in the world could certainly fathom that reason because it says it's in the Torah. And he could certainly understand if it's going to apply to him or not. And who was that Shlomo Melech? Shlomo Melech. He was able to say, I'm smart, I'm wise. And the Torah gives you the reason. So obviously if the reason doesn't apply, I don't got to do the mitzvah. So therefore he didn't do the mitzvah because he felt the reason doesn't apply to him. He's a smart guy. And the Torah gives you the reason. So you don't got to go beyond that. The Torah itself tells you the reason. And he sinned. And ultimately he was wrong and his heart did get led astray. He was actually wrong and the reason of the Torah applied to him as well. It's funny. He had a logical result of right. not to be there. It's also funny that he's the one that said He's the one that said regarding Paraduma, I understand the, uh, the reason for every mitzvah. Save one, Paraduma. He must have said that before. Yeah, that's interesting as to when he may have said that. But he might have said that even afterwards once he understood, I see that there's Porah Aduma everywhere. Or Marta, I thought I'd understand all the mitzvahs. Once Porah Aduma is beyond me, then so are all the other mitzvahs. Because those chukas all mitzvahs contain Porah Aduma. So Shlomo Melech was living proof of the message and the lesson of Porah Aduma. The truth is anybody less than Shlomo Melech's caliber would never prove it. Because maybe you weren't smart enough. But did if he we take them, or did he think he understand them? Well, that's the point. Again, I'm, yeah, that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. The point is, Shlomo Melech, he needed the person who's wisest of all men. That's Shlomo Melech, wisest of all men. You take him, and he says, I've reached the end of my ability to grasp. With Torah Aduma, ultimately, he didn't even grasp the simplest, is what it comes out to because there's an element of poradum in the simplest. And there's nothing simpler than a mitzvah that's so logical where the Torah tells you this is pretty obvious. That's simple. That's for sure I could grasp. Ultimately, you learn the lesson that even in there, there's poradum. There's poradum in the simplest mitzvah of loyar belonashim. Even there, there's poradum. Kibudav aim take the level of Kibbut Avim to the level of Dabba Benesina where you don't wake up your father that's almost illogical <coughs> yeah there's Paraduma there as well even in the most logical of mitzvahs even the ones you appreciate the most all mitzvahs at, well, at one point reach the level of where it seems absurd God tells Avram sacrifice your son that's absurd all mitzvahs we reach levels nowadays of where it just doesn't Makes sense anymore, and that's and that's still paraduma, and it's still going to be paraduma over there. So therefore, it has to zos chukas Paraduma becomes the best example of zos chukas And Shlomo Melch himself saying, "Omar to be and I couldn't reach, I couldn't grasp it. Means I reached a level of it's incapable of understanding. Yes, 
And therefore, even those that you thought you understood, you didn't understand. Because there's poor Aduma there as well. So, what does it mean when the Gemara in Sanhedrin says that he made a mistake? He didn't make a mistake. He understood it well. He couldn't have made a mistake in the reason. Shlomach didn't make a mistake. He understood the mitzvah and he analyzed and he understood it very well and he was able to relate to it to himself and he was able to estimate and assess himself very well. The mistake that he made was not in the reason of the mitzvah. The mistake that he made was not in his assessment of himself. It's the fact that you could make the assessment. That was the mistake. The fact that you are allowed to assess yourself and the mitzvah and draw these conclusions the mistake was even reasons given in the Torah do not change the, 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 the din the din is never held hostage to its reason you don't have that the parameters of the din become dependent on the reason for the din is there a separate unique or some defining reason why those reasons are given in those mitzvahs otherwise it's almost confusing or it's well, some other function. Okay, it's a question, but we're going to have to save that particular one. Other than to say that the fact that the Torah gave reasons there and gave us an example of of the Shlomo so by giving us a model of this lesson, it becomes a lesson for everywhere else. That if you can have a simple reason that's given by none less than the Torah itself. So the reason is simple, the authority that gives the reason is impeccable, and the person that applies it is the person that's most applicable to, Shlomo Melech, and still it doesn't work out, it teaches us the lesson that every lesser level of this that everybody else applies, where they're going to say, you mentioned before about gay rights, that you know they're going to say, oh, the reason for it was only in those days and therefore nowadays doesn't apply. It's, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, so draw lessons from this mitzvah that the Torah gave its own reasons and it was applied by Shlomo Melch and still it's wrong to every other place that dinam are not hostage to their reasons. That even reasons given to the Torah don't change the, the... If the reason disappears, the thing is still there? Isn't that what we've been saying all this time? No, you were saying that you think you, you, you think that your reason is better than the, you are not afraid that like Shlomo Mela. Yeah. It does apply to you. I say that the, the reason is not there anymore. Well, if the din is not dependent on the, the reason like Poraduma, where there is no discernible reason, so if there is no discernible reason for Pora Aduma, then even when the reasons that are discernible disappear, you're still left with the Pora Aduma, the indiscernible aspects of the mitzvah. So what do you mean when you say the reason disappears? Who says that's the reason? So if we see that even where the Torah gives the reason, and it doesn't apply as, as Shlomo Melch assesses himself, he still is wrong, so then obviously you cannot say the statement that you made, that the reason disappears, that's the whole point. 
if there's chok everywhere, then how are you able to ever judge that the reason disappears? <coughs> Even where the reason is given by the Torah, you can never say it disappears. Right. Let's say, come Pesach. The thing disappeared. What disappeared? We cannot have a come. So we can't do it. So we can't do it. That's not the same thing as saying if the reason disappears, therefore we don't have to do it. We can't do it. There's a difference between can't performing a mitzvah. A person never without arms and legs can't put out film. In any case, we'll shortly get back to what you just Why brought up. Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> <laughs> to give you something to question still. <laughs> The reason, although given in the Torah, does not compel the din. And therefore the mitzvah applies to everyone, even someone who the reason shouldn't apply to. Because although the reason is an aspect of the mitzvah, but it's not the entirety of the mitzvah. <coughs> and that's what we had with Korach. Although the reason is given in the Gemara, and based on the reason of the Gemara, Korach made the mistake. It's applicable universally no matter what. And this is how we have to learn the entire Torah, like Pora Duma. That the same way that Pora Duma is understood to be non-understandable, that's the way you should learn Gi'ulei Nochrim, the laws of Kashring. Even though the, the reason is obvious, even though the reason is even cashering is a chok. It's interesting that Moshe says this. A number of months ago, someone came over to me and said, you know, the truth is he doesn't understand the laws of cashering. They make absolutely no sense. He says, why? He says, you know, he started engineering and things. He says, they, he says it's true that Caleb of the olden days were so porous that the idea of kashering made sense. But nowadays, what happens with our kalim, when you kasher them, nothing really is happening. And the laws of kashering make no sense with our kalim whatsoever. So, uh, and the Gemara tells us the reasons for kashering. We understand it, and it's just not working. I mean, it doesn't make sense, you don't need it anymore. Whereas Harry just said, the reason no longer applies. You know, uh, you take a keli nowadays, it doesn't really apply. And what the Moshe here is saying is, Zos Chukas was said by Por Aduma, Zos Chukas was said by Giul Nochem, by the laws of Kashem. The same approach that you learn this mitzvah with is the same approach you got to learn that mitzvah with. And that's why the Torah introduces both with Zos Chukas It takes two mitzvahs, 
and to show you that just like over here, you're never going to be able to say this, this doesn't apply now. How are you going to say it doesn't apply? Like Harry started asking. Well, so does Corbin. And you're at a brick wall. You can't really say it doesn't apply because you're not sure what the reason is to begin with. So how are you going to say it doesn't apply anymore? It's only the mitzvah that you recognize clearly. Oh, I know the reason for that mitzvah. And that doesn't apply anymore. If that's the case, then the mitzvah is no longer functioning. Comes the Torah and says, Zos Torah over here, which you understand. It says, Zos Torah over there, which, why is that a chok? Both of the same chok. Learn them the same way. And therefore, all mitzvahs apply even where the reasons seemingly no longer apply because the reasons, two, two, two aspects of this. One is that one has to assume that the multitude of reasons that exist, which the Vilna Gaon says every mitzvah has hundreds of reasons behind it, even behind the revealed ones. It's like an iceberg, where the revealed reasons are merely the tip of the iceberg that you're able to see. But there are vast amount of reasons that exist underneath that are not able to be seen. So there are reasons, you just don't know the reasons. So even if all the reasons that you know of become non-applicable or non-functioning, there's still an entire region of reasons that you didn't know of to begin with that are still applicable and still there even though you don't know about it. You don't know. I tried to get to the root of reasons and they're all distant. So therefore, you have to understand that just as Pora Aduma is unfathomable, every mitzvah is unfathomable in terms of the reasons, and there are reasons there beyond whatever we recognize. There's a multitude of reasons. We only know some of them, and when those disappear, even if those reasons disappear, the rest is still there. So it's still performing for the rest of the reasons. But I think there's a deeper understanding, and that is, even were it possible, to understand every single reason which is impossible. But the mere fact that you have to comply with obedience and acceptance, the melech mitzvah v'sa'om, the bar mitzvah, the general nature of obligation which permeates every mitzvah, that never disappears. That's obedience. So therefore, even if we're all reasons to ultimately disappear, the fact that it's melech mitzvah esha'om, the fact that you're obedient and subjugating kabolas ol malchus shemaim is the ultimate goal of every mitzvah. Kabolas ol malchus shemaim. We're not interested in the bar mitzvah boy doing 613 mitzvahs. Upon entry into the age of 13, you are a bar chiyuva, one general subjugating kabolas ol malchus shemaim. It's interesting, which is the first mitzvah that a bar mitzvah boy has? No, no, impossible, impossible. Bar mitzvah boy becomes bar mitzvah when the three stars come out at night of his bar mitzvah. You can't put on film for another 12 hours. Marv is not a mitzvah. Shema, what's Shema? Kabbalah's all Malchus Shemaim. The very first Mishnah in Brachs. Right? That first Mishnah. That first Mishnah. That's the very first mitzvah that a Jew could fulfill when he's bar mitzvah. The very first mitzvah. Or what is that? That's the mitzvah. That's the first mitzvah. 
Absolutely. That's till the next day. I got a better one. How about Briss? Briss is actually credited to him already from eight days old. Because that's what the way the Torah says it. If you'd be 13 years old, then you'd be wrong the same way he's wrong about film. You can't do the bris till the next day because you don't do bris at night. No, no, but you can make a bris at night if you're over the time. No, so that's a Shiloh. That's a Shiloh if that could be done. Pashtus, we would say that you have to do a bris only by day. So it comes out that he can't really do the bris at night anyway if he was uncircumcised. So the very first mitzvah that comes is the night mitzvah of Shema, which is Kabbalah Salmach Shemaim. Your bar mitzvah. One mitzvah. Kabbalah Salmach Shemaim, which is the embodiment of every mitzvah. That's the Nasev and Nishma. And until you reach that level of Nasev and Nishma, you got nothing. If you're Nishma Venasa, you're nowhere. You have to be Nasev and Nishma, because if you're Nishma Venasa, you got nothing. Just like a Ger, just like Klaisol at Kabbalah Zatara, just like the Bar Mitzvah boy at age 13. Zos Chukasatora, without Pora Duma, you got nothing. With Pora Duma, you got everything. Shal Shudas. Shal Shudas. With this, you got it all. With Ahmed, you got nothing. Without Shal Shudas, you don't got no Sudash Lishit, or the second or the first, you got nothing. With it, you get all three. Without Pora Duma, no mitzvahs with paradumo. All the mitzvahs, it's the embodiment of all. So therefore it's bar mitzvah, one mitzvah, kabbalah somal chashemayim. Therefore shloma melech, or korach, were mistaken with this, and taken with the laws of kashri. Both are zos chukas Because the common denominator of all mitzvahs has to be this. A number of years ago, there was um, an article in Time magazine that discussed the Rambam, Maimonides, what a great person he was. And probably as a result of that article, there's been a mistaken notion in the Welt at large, which it's interesting, you know, um, if you ask people about, tell me over statements of the Rambam, how many people seemingly know this statement of the Rambam? That uh, the reason why Corbonus was given in the time of the... Um, it's yes, but Shemaim was because there was an era of Avodazar. And for Hashem to wean the Jews away from the idolatry that was prevalent in the society that they came from, Egyptian society and Canaanite society, therefore Hashem said, listen, you know, although this might not be my ideal preference, but do Korbanus to me rather than Korbanus type idols. That's how the Rambam rationalizes and explains the mitzvah of Korbanus. And it's funny how many people know this particular Rambam in Moranavuchim. Of course, they all come to the same conclusion. It's a conclusion that comes from uh, learning in, in Ramaz-type schools, which is that, therefore, when nowadays that we don't have idolatry, and the whole idea of serving God with blood and killing animals is uh, repulsive to modern sensibilities. So there would be no point in having a third base amygdash where you are reconstituting all of these things that to us do nothing for us anymore. And therefore, if you'd ask many, many Orthodox people, I'm talking about conservative reform, if you'd ask many Orthodox people that were raised and educated in these kinds of institutions and their ilk, 
as to whether there's going to be korbanos in the future, according to the Rambam, they're familiar with this Rambam, they'll say, I don't know if there's going to be. According to the Rambam, there probably won't be. And I've heard this statement made by many nice, wonderful, good people that are sincere and religious, that they're not convinced that there's going to be, when Mashiach comes, a base of Mikdash, where there's going to be avoidus hakorbanos. They're not convinced. And they say, well, certainly that's not what the Rambam seems to hold. Why? Because the Rambam himself says that Korbanus was a concession to the prevalent custom in order to wean Jews away from that Avodah. I think a lot of it came from this Time Magazine article, although most people aren't familiar that that's where it came from, but it's hard for me to imagine that all of these Jews educated in these institutions are so expert in Rambam that they know these uh, elusive Rambams and more Nebuchadnezzar when they don't seem to know anything else about the Rambam they don't seem to know much of the Rambam and Mishnah Torah they don't seem to know much else about the Rambam and more Nebuchadnezzar but this particular Rambam they're familiar with it's hard for me to imagine they all came across it quite by accident they must have gotten it either it's the point the point is it's not coming from an honest learning of Torah it's coming from hearing it second-hand and third-hand from somebody else that's not so honest about Torah learning. Because whoever taught them the same way whoever told you about this was not meaning to teach you Torah. He was meaning to do locker room type boy talk. And that's how you got it. It's the same way that the people that know this Rambam aren't getting it from honest learning, but from dishonest agenda-driven learning by others. So therefore they're getting second, third-hand, agenda-driven learning. So therefore I think what we should do... Yes, I know a lot of nice Orthodox men that think like that. And it's amazing, we talked two weeks ago about Miraglam. Oh, okay, fine. That's the point. That those kinds of professors teach other people these kinds of things. And everybody walks away with the Shtus and, and the truth of the matter is that it's, um, it's something which we talked about two weeks ago, the Parsha Miraglam, how we're so influenced by media and by books and by... And we get such misinformed and misinterpreted information constantly. And this is another prime example of that. So I think what we will do at this point is see what the Ramam himself does right. But not the Rambam in Moran Vuchim, which tends to be not very popularly learned, and it's a difficult subject matter to learn. But let's take a look at the Rambam's magnum opus, his work for, of his life, which was the Mishnah Torah. The Rambam in Mishnah Torah wrote 14 books on 14 subjects that encompass and incorporate the entire Torah. At the end of each work, he tends to end his halachas with a kind of an agodic, an agodic um, expression. So the two books that deal with the subject matter, one is called Avoda, the book of temple service, and one is called Korbonus, the book of animal sacrifices. And let's take a look what he writes at the end of these two books. Let's take the first one on top. The Rambam, by the way, was a person who encouraged people to search and look for reasons, even in the Chukim, even in Chukim. 
He encouraged that. Mishnah Torah is the Raman that we always learn. Again, you're telling me stuff that you... <laughs> Mishnah Torah is the Rambam that we always learn and we always talk about. I know what you're, talk- I know what you're talking about. I-, I just don't want to answer the affirmative to your question. I'd rather phrase it my way. Roy lo'odam lizboinein b'mishpatei ha-Torah ha-Kadosha v'leida sa'ifinyonam kifikaychai. It is worthwhile, he says, for a person to try to contemplate the mishpatim of the Torah, the laws of the Torah, and to try to understand them to the best of his abilities. If he doesn't come to an understanding of a reason for a particular mitzvah, it shouldn't be light in his eyes. He should approach the study of Torah and mitzvahs differently than he does secular matter. This is the last halacha in Hilchas Mila, that's why he mentions this. Take a look at the laws of sacrilege. Again, he gives an agodic underpinning to the mitzvah of meal. What's meal? Sacrilege. It means something that belongs to hektish. If you use it for mundane, you are in violation of the laws of meila, and there are different penalties and punishments that go with it. He says, learn the lesson of meila. And what is that? What is meila? Sacrilege where you are using to benefit for mundane purposes something that belongs to hektish. So what is that? Something that's an item, an object. A mere object that's made of what? Wood, stone, dirt, clay, cement. Why are you in violation of Mila? Only because somebody called it hektish. How did it become hektish? It wasn't born that way, it wasn't created that way, God didn't make it that way. Someone declared a state of hektish on it. That means with mere declaration of words, it invests the object with a degree of holiness that if you treat it profanely and mundanely, you're in violation of Mila. That's what comes out. By mere verbal declaration over a mundane object, you have elevated it and sanctified it to a degree that profane usage desecrates it and you're in violation of desecration of its Kedusha. So take a look. If something has mundane as dirt and stone merely with a verbal declaration it becomes sanctified and mere misusage of it in a profane way is considered a desecration and even when you do it by mistake you still require some atonement for it let's take a look how severe it is what is it? It's dirt, stone, nothing. How did it become sanctified? I made it sanctified. I declared Kedushan. And yet I'm not allowed to use it in a profane fashion. It's considered desecration if I do. And even if I inadvertently do it, I'm chayv and I require atonement. So learn a lesson from that. Search behind the reason and learn the following lesson. Kabul Certainly when you get to a real mitzvah, 
that God carves the word chok means to carve, to engrave it's there, it's fixed God gives us a chok it's engraved and it's there a person shouldn't shouldn't uh, profane it and demean it and kick it you don't understand the reason like Korach did yeah, tell me the reason for this why should I have to put on another ad ridiculous and you kick it away a mitzvah is certainly more kedusha than a declared state of sanctity on an object don't treat it in a profane way that's real desecration don't treat it in a mundane way and treat it the same way you would secular matters a mitzvah is a mitzvah, it's precious and it's holy. You should observe my chukim and my mishpatim and perform them. To tell you to be as careful with chok as with mishpatim. What does it mean, shmira? You should carefully be very, take caution with it. And do not demean them and think of them as less than logical mitzvahs. Mishpatim are mitzvahs that are reasonable. We understand the reason and the benefits to it are well known. Such as Gezel, Shvichas Domim, Kibud Av Those are model mitzvahs that everybody, whenever they talk about the Ten Commandments, they're not talking about the first four. Shabbos and... They're talking about Kibbutz theft, murder. How, how great and wonderful the whole world is based on that. Does everybody understand that? Kibbutz Remember that in Kibbutz there's a little bit of Paraduma as well. Paraduma is born from Kibbutz All of these things are understandable. Those people treat with great respect people treat those mitzvahs with great meaning oh it's an important mitzvah it's the essence of Judaism you know all of these things chukim on the other hand are the ones those are the mitzvahs that we don't understand the chachom say regarding chukim from the root of the word chok means carved chokuk chokuk the tablets were called carved. God carved the mitzvahs in the stone of the tablets. The word chukim then becomes chukim chaktiloch. These are carved and engraved. And that's why the words chukim, that are the not understandable mitzvahs, are the ones that are called carved and engraved because they're permanent. They're permanently etched and engraved and irrevocable. Chukim chaktiloch you can't doubt them you can't you know second guess them the Yitzhar Shaladam but it's these mitzvahs that the Yitzhar these are the ones that we get constant constant uh, um, embarrassment and constant questioning about we're constantly challenged those are the examples that he uses Pork, meat and milk, eglarufa, poraduma, sorham shtaleach. Kamoyadovna melch, mitzdarmina minimina, kushay mishivna achukim. 
And Dov HaMelech himself was always challenged on this from others. And the more they would pursue him with these empty questions. The more he was challenged, the more he would attach himself to Torah. Says the Rambam, and it's funny that these three lines of the Rambam that are well known by everybody that learns Mishnah Torah are not known by all of these nice, fine, wonderful Jews that know of these elusive uh, that appear in Time Magazine. B'chol ha-korbonos Kulon nechlal ha-chukim They're all chukim. They're not there just to wean you away from Avodah The Rambam's contradicting himself. In Maron Nebuchim, everybody knows the reason for korbonos are to wean you away from Avodah Zarah and Hashem is reluctantly granting concessions to the human desire for blood service by giving us the laws of Korbanas. Right? That's what everybody says. I mean, as the Ramah more or less says, that Hashem makes a concession in order to wean the Jews away from Avodah Zarah. He makes a concession by granting them a form of service which they desire to do anyway, which was blood sacrifice service. But since this isn't an ideal form of worship, and nowadays we're certainly beyond that, we no longer need this, so we no longer have to have this mitzvah. This mitzvah is no longer going to be applicable. Says the Rambam, Kol ha-korbonos kulon nechlal They all fall to the category of chukim. Furthermore, says the Rambam, is it important? Yes. The world stands on account of this mitzvah. That if you perform these chukim and mishpatim, that's how you get to Olam Haba. And the Torah places greater emphasis on fulfillment of chukim even than the mishpatim. Shenema ushmartem es chukosai ves mishpatai first chukim, then mishpotim asher yasosam adam v'chaibwem and through them you live. This is how you're going to have life. Chukim before mishpotim. Learn this Rambam and and then talk to me about what the Rambam holds about the future when the Mashiach comes. Let's take a look at the Rambam, what he writes in the last in the last uh, halacha of Hilchus Tmur from Sefer Korbonus. Over there the laws of Tmur are people that want to exchange sanctity from one animal to the other. They exchange the sanctity and the Torah gives laws regarding that that both remain sanctified. Etc. Let's skip down. Let's go to the fourth line. And again he starts off just although all chukim are decrees of God without fathomable reasons nevertheless as he encourages there the Rambam encourages study of all mitzvahs even the chukim that's where the Rambam maybe differs than others the Rambam says even though it's a chok search and search and try to understand the reason but the Rambam place why I'm not going to go into that right now why the Rambam encourages that but that was the Rambam's view and was the view of many Rishonim 
they had an approach that as much as possible that you could understand and comprehend from any mitzvah, even the Chok, do so. It's dangerous though, that's correct. But he says, which is why it's fallen out of, you know, uh, fashion. But the Rambam held, and in his day it made much more sense even than nowadays, that even Chukim, he says like this, he says that the reason why mitzvahs are called Chukim is not because their reasons are beyond the grasp of people to ever comprehend. It's because the majority of the people, the majority of the times, will not grasp it. And based on this majority approach, we call them chukim. But if a person really studies and really tries to go into it, he will grasp a great deal of it. And then the chukim itself become more understandable. I'll briefly answer your question, Jerry. The reason why the Rambam encourages it, although it's dangerous, is because of the fact that there's a tendency that people have that a mitzvah they don't appreciate, they can't perform with enthusiasm. It's the nature of the person. It's human nature. And since it's important to perform a mitzvah with greater enthusiasm, therefore he encourages, learn the lesson of the mitzvah, you'll get a greater appreciation of the Torah and you'll perform the mitzvahs better with greater enthusiasm. For example, in the last halacha, we just learned the great appreciation of Me'ilah. The laws of Me'ilah, yes, yeah, sacrilege. It's just one second. Let's understand what Me'ilah teaches us. What is the moral, ethical, theological, philosophical lesson of the mitzvah? Not that the mitzvah is held hostage to these reasons. That's the premise of Torah Duma. That underneath every mitzvah is Torah Duma. That's the given. We start with that. We start with Nasa Venishma. But don't end with Nasa. That's what the Rambam is encouraging. Study mitzvahs and reasons. Because he's saying don't end as an ignoramus with Nasa. Don't be from the masses of people that do things only by rote. Because rote performance is not exactly the best performance either. You start with Nasa before the Nishma. But ultimately you should come to a Nishma. As long as you always remember the underlying premise of Nasa. As long as you don't forget and you don't neglect where you began, that you began with plain mitzvah performance that's being done for the sake of the mitzvah. You have to start with that premise. But you can go beyond that and try to understand it as long as you don't fall into the trap of what you're saying, which is dangerous. Oh, now I understand the reason the mitzvah not to do the mitzvah, the reason doesn't... We said that. I gave you a whole share we discussed for the past hour. You can't figure it out if there is no reason. So that's we just spent an hour that's the basic fundamental underpinning of everything and w- whether I encourage you to go beyond that do not forget the last hour of the shear I mean if we're going to go with that then that's a disaster then you're obviously as bad then as the masses of people that are ignorant and shouldn't go beyond that that's why you start with that that's why it's called the chok because if a person is incapable of grasping what we've been saying for the past hour then don't go beyond the simple understanding and just do it Forget about it. Be a poshity and don't do any more. But if you're capable of going beyond that and not falling into the trap, then go beyond that. Because mitzvahs have tremendous lessons to teach us. Ethical, moral, um, theological, and philosophical. We just gave a reason behind the mitzvah of Meilah. And there's a tremendous lesson to be derived from that. Take a look. If some unsacred object becomes sanctified with mere verbal declaration and all of a sudden becomes holy and sanctified 
with a verbal declaration that you need to be careful and you need to avoid violation and desecration even inadvertently. So what does it tell you about how to approach an object of real sanctity or mitzvahs that you shouldn't just be careless and cavalier about it? Isn't that it's a tremendous lesson? By delving into the reason of the mitzvah, you get a tremendous moral and ethical reason an understanding. It's partial. So search them out. Again, don't forget the basic premise. So he says, what is... So he starts off with that introduction. So therefore, again, the counterpart of what the Rambam says at the end of Sefer Avoda is in Sefer Korbonus, the last halacha there. If you juxtapose and put the two together, you get two sides of the same coin, which is the totality of the Rambam's philosophy about mitzvahs in general. Again, I told you, not everybody goes with this. Not everybody says, let's give reasons. As you just said, it's dangerous, whatever it is. A lot of people avoided this entire approach. The Rambam was different. The Rambam's approach was to encourage it. Was it for those days? Not whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The Rambam's approach was definitely to encourage looking for reasons. He encouraged it. This was his approach. And he does it. And throughout Mora Nebuchim he does it. But you have to preface it with what he first writes in Sefer Avodah. Then go beyond that. So he starts off with the introduction. Nevertheless, royal is You should still try to delve and understand and contemplate and meditate on the mitzvahs. And wherever you can give a rationale that will encourage you to appreciate it better and give you greater enthusiasm for the mitzvah, go ahead and do it. Just like we've said it on countless occasions that the word for reason, for mitzvahs, is called tam. Tam means taste. And that's exactly the purpose of reasons for mitzvahs. Nobody tells you that you eat because of the taste. Everybody tells you, tzaddik, oichel, The reason why you eat is because it's healthy. Because your body needs it. It's nutritious. I have had the experience of being with people that when they're very, very sick and they lost their drive and their appetite to eat, even though they knew, they knew they have to eat, they couldn't bring themselves to eat. They just couldn't. Things that they always ate, things that were healthy for them, they could not bring themselves to eat because they had no appetite whatsoever. It didn't taste good. But you tell them, you know you're sick, and you know you're an adult. You're an adult human being, and you understand the concept of nutrition. And you know that's why you have to eat. And even if it doesn't taste, you still got to eat that way. And you're an adult, and you're sick. You got to eat. They couldn't bring themselves to eat. That's human nature. Human nature is without an appetite, we don't eat. We need appetite in order to eat, to motivate us to eat. That's not why we eat, for real. The reason why we eat is we need it. It's nutrition. But the reason why people do eat is because they have appetite and they're motivated to eat because of appetite. That's not why you're supposed to eat for real, but that's why people actually do eat. And therefore, when we talk about mitzvahs, we're talking about a tam the exact same way. It's a flavor, a taste. It's not the essence. It's not the nutritional value of the mitzvah. It's not what the mitzvah does for you and why ultimately the mitzvah is good for you, just like the taste of an apple isn't the nutrition of the apple. It's the taste of the apple. It's not the nutrition, right? Clearly it's not the nutrition. The taste of a sizzling steak is not the nutrition. If you take that same steak 
and grind it up and chop it up into mush and eat it, it would taste horrible, but it would be equally nutritious. And if you would take a potato chip and crumble it up into mush and eat it, it would be equally non-nutritious. Right? It's the oil and the grease and the salt and whatever else in it. Equally non-nutritious. And you take that steak and you grind it up into mush, it would taste horrible and be equally nutritious. But why are people eating both the potato chips and the steak? Because of the taste. But the real essence of both are completely opposite. The potato chip is unhealthy and steak is healthy. Assume, okay, now this, maybe I should have said something else. I just couldn't think of anything that people eat and supposed to grill vegetables. Fill the mitzvah to sustain yourself. Right. But yet when it comes to sustain yourself on a spiritual level, you didn't give us that same uh, same desire. So therefore the Rambam says, Royal is boining, that wherever you could find and develop a taste. I don't know. I, every time Michael was around and we, we had a discussion of wine or I gave wine, I mean, he, I, I asked him, like, is there such a thing as a $100 bottle of wine that's worth $100? I mean, like, what is it so much different than the $10 bottle or the $5 bottle? I just don't have the taste. I just don't have the taste. I mean, I know when I went into the Louvre with a cousin of mine and they showed me a Monet, I, I, the stuff that appeals to me doesn't appeal to the connoisseur who appreciates it. So you, you go to school and you go for, I don't know, Miles is not here, but he could explain to us that you go four years to develop a taste and an appreciation of art or this or that. The reason you don't have to go four years to develop a taste is a mistake. No, that was Jerry's question. So the point is that some tastes are developed. And yes, you could develop a taste for mitzvahs. You could develop a taste for wine. You could develop a taste for art. You could develop a taste for mitzvahs. And the Rambam encourages it. That's the Rambam's point. It encourages it, but understand that all you're doing is developing a taste for something that has value infinitely above, beyond the taste of what you have. Art, by the way, doesn't. Because beauty is denied the beholder. Either you have it or you don't have it. It's garnished. And same thing with other things. Mitzvahs have inherent value like food. The taste is there merely to give you a geschmack and to motivate you to eat because without it, people don't eat. And the biggest right I'm proving is that everybody in this room knows olive base. Simple. That food is there for nutrition. And yet, I mean, I've seen it countless amount of times, that without appetite, when you're sick, you know it, you know it, you still can't bring yourself to eat. And they threaten you, I'm going to put an IV, and the doctor will say, if you don't eat, I'm going to have to put an IV. And after a while, you'll take the IV rather than eating it orally. It's, it's amazing. People do not eat without appetite, without motivation. And therefore, says the Rambam, it's important to understand human nature in terms of mitzvah compliance. Before we talked about mitzvah acceptance with Torah Aduma, but mitzvah compliance there works in the reverse direction. Mitzvah compliance works in the opposite direction from mitzvah acceptance. For mitzvah acceptance, you got to know subjugation to the general Kabbalah's Omal Chushamayim. And therefore, Zois Chukas by Torah Aduma. And Zoysu Kasatoyo, where you're dealing with the laws of physics by Kashrin Kalim, the same acceptance. Same acceptance. You accept 
with the most logical thing that works with the laws of aerodynamics and I'm telling you, someone came to me with a shyla. he says he doesn't understand the laws of kashring now, they, they don't work anymore, it makes no sense whatsoever based on the laws of whatever it is so, Teret says you could reach a point with any mitzvah where you're left with a paradumah, where you're left with a paradumah, so we talked about last week, with karach with the tchelis so you could reach such a point therefore in terms of mitzvah acceptance Zos Chukas of Poraduma is equal to Zos Chukas of the most logical for acceptance. When it comes to compliance and Gishmak, we said earlier, Agar doesn't accept one mitzvah out of 613, so you're talking about a 99.8% acceptance, it's nothing, it's zero acceptance. Yet there's no Jew that's even on such a level in compliance. Teretz's acceptance is different and compliance is different. No Jew is 100% energy compliant, but you have to be 100% com- um, accepted. So when we're talking about time mitzvahs, understand both sides of the coin. When it's, com- when it's uh, acceptance without reason, when it's compliance, you'll be more compliant if you have a gishmak and you understand it. You're much more compliant. Mitzvahs that are not so gishmak, or out of style become, unfortunately, people comply with less. Therefore, in the interest of making people more compliant with mitzvahs, we give time in. And it's encouraged. And it's a good approach. We encourage it because people will become more compliant. That's all part of human nature. Recognize human nature. Recognize human nature. Sure. So it says the Rambam, and again he prefaces it, Although all of the chukim of the Torah are gezeris, and therefore they're going to be beyond reason. And therefore, again, I want to emphasize that the Rambam says all korbonas fall into this category. The idea that korbonas won't be resurrected because it's the reason. The Rambam says clearly not like that. This is the Rambam talking in halach. Nevertheless, he says, but still, and that's how you have to understand the Mora Nevuchim as well. And that's where all these people were mistaken. They started with the Mora Nevuchim. They never learned the Ramam and Mishnah Torah. And they worked backwards. And therefore they came up with crazy things. The Ramam introduced says the basis of everything. That's the trap that everybody's falling into that Jerry was talking about. But the Ramam's clear. And the truth is, it's so obvious and elementary that anybody that understands this will not ever question this ever, ever again. I mean, I, I'm amazed at how often I get the same question over again from people I've already explained this to. But if you understand this once, if you go through this lesson once, it's once and for all, and I should never, ever have to hear the stupid question again. But uh, the reason doesn't apply, and we don't need car- but I, I shouldn't have to ever hear it again. It is so elementary. But the point is, people apparently are not quite as intelligent as that attacker. you should be raising people the, the way they did in the old days don't ask, don't know because people aren't intelligent enough but I mean we're assuming people are intelligent enough and if they're intelligent enough you tell them this elementary principle and lesson and then say now let's try to understand to get a gishmak because okay, go ahead and do it then you have more the book more the book was built on this after this so the Rambam says, start off with the basic reason that you understand. It's all poradum, it's all a gzair, it's all a chok. But it's still good 
and worthwhile an endeavor. Again, this is his opinion. Not everybody agrees with it. His opinion it is a worthwhile endeavor. You should still meditate and contemplate it, and as much reason as you could give, do so. Do so. It's nice as like this. We talked about before that King.